We're going to be turning together in God's Word. If you join me to Psalm 19, if you have a phone app, you can use that to flip over to Psalm 19 there. I'm going to be using the ESV. You can find lots of great versions. If you don't have a Bible at home and uh, purchasing a Bible seems out of reach at this moment, um, there is probably a Bible within reach of you in your pew, and you can take that. Uh, we, we don't want anyone to not have a Bible Uh, It is God's word. It is our life. So uh, we look there to know God. Well, today we're we're actually talking about that, how we can know God. And uh, as as we think about that big question that this psalm takes us into, I think of a story uh, from my uh, experience as a college student at the University of Missouri. I was in the humanities sequence, which was a four-semester long course, where there were lectures and then there were discussion groups and together we read uh, books from ancient world to the modern world and we were just diving deep into the biggest questions of the human experience, all of those, uh, the depths of, of philosophy and the great books of literature. We were reading and considering those together and I was mentored through that process by a professor named Greg. Greg, uh, I, I learned how to read, how to think, how to write. And I also learned a great deal of kindness and understanding uh, and love from Greg. He was a mentor to me. I remember the first day of class, though, in the discussion group, and Greg was, it was uncomfortable to be around him because you could tell he was, he was sweaty. He was, he was just not feeling well at all. He was, frankly, very awkward. And we were all wondering how to relate in the moment. We endured that class. We got through it. And I got to know him through the many classes to come as a warm, um, fun, and funny guy. In his, in his office hours, I got to know him personally. And he shared that he struggled with depression. That summer before that fall semester, he had gone through a dark season of depression. And that class was one of the first time he had been around people at all since he had come out of that moment. And so with him sharing much of his story, I shared a lot of my story. And in college, you're, you're figuring out who you are, and your friends are figuring that out, out around you. Some of my friends were struggling, struggling with mental health uh, situations, and Greg was able to mentor me in wisdom and in gentleness in those situations, friends with eating disorders. And he was able to, to walk me through that wisely. And as I experienced all this, I made an assumption about Greg. I was a new Christian at the time, and he was such a wonderful man. I just assumed the whole time he was a Christian. So one day I asked him, so Greg, how long have you been a Christian? And he says, oh, David, I've never been a Christian. I'm an atheist. And I was just floored. I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't have categories for Greg. At that point, he was the most godly person that I knew. And to this day, I would still perhaps say the same. A strong reflection of the one who made him. Some of us might want to hide from the possibility of someone who is an other than Christian person being more like God than us, the ones who claim to know God, right? That's a data point we want to ignore. We'd rather hide that fact. Others of us, uh, other than Christian people who would take a risk to come into a community like this or or, or peek at us online, uh, you might like to ignore the idea that there could be a God that could exist who might have authority, who might be speaking into this world and sharing the way this world should work and the way our lives should work. 
we, when it's convenient, we want to hide from the reality of God. And this can be uh, very much an attitudinal thing. This is our attitude. I mean, how many of you like to be told what to do? You know, I just relish it. You know, you're Americans, right? You don't want to be told what to do. But what if he had a better will for us than, than we have ourselves? Because the actuality, that's our attitude, but the actuality of our lives is we make a mess, right? And when we do make a mess, walking outside of what God would say is good for us and healthy and true and sound, we're, we're making a mess, but we won't let anyone say anything about it. Yeah, we're making a mess, but you, you better not point out the fact that I'm making a mess, right? So we wouldn't want to hear from God or any God talker or the Bible at that point to, to point out the failing in us. And in all of this, we can fall back on an assumption, and many of our neighbors have this assumption. Maybe you've had this assumption before, or some here today may have this, that there's just no evidence. There's no seen evidence for God. And so why would I orient my life around what God has said in a Bible this ancient text. Why would I believe that there, there is a God who orders all things and does so wisely and I should conform my life to that? Why would, I, why would I even bother with that? You know, I was walking through the Rocky Mountain National Park yesterday and I was thinking about this. Many of our neighbors would walk through that same park, see all the trees growing from the rocks, see the wildlife, see people delighting in all of these things. And they would say that, that there's just no evidence for God. You can't see him there upholding all of this by his power. So there's no evidence. And today, though, we're, we're turning to David. And he saw things differently. He would walk through God's world. And, and it wasn't that he saw an absence of evidence. He actually looked at everything. And in everything, he saw not just evidence. He saw the reality of God being shouted back to him. It's like the question gets turned on its head. The skeptic might say, well, where do you see evidence for God? And, and Isaiah the prophet points to the sky in Isaiah 40, verse 26, and says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. David is astounded. Now, he's not a student of modern science. He's, he's not thinking about uh, the, the fine-tuning of all the natural forces that uh, make it incredible that life could possibly exist, which even secular scientists think is incredible. Um, I digress. David wasn't a student of modern science, but he was someone who lived under a sky with no light pollution. So he would shepherd his father's sheep by night as, as a young man. And later on in life, he could go outside at night and he could see the Milky Way with, with nothing in the way. No billboard lights, no city lights. He's just seeing it. And it's all just shouting the reality, there is a maker. And as an Israelite, not only did he delight in knowing that there was a maker who made all of this glory, but he rejoiced that he knew that maker and that maker knew him and had revealed himself in his Torah, the instruction, the law of the Lord. He delighted in this. And, and it's remarkable that he delighted in this because that law spoke against him and against his mess because David is like you and me. David liked to do what he liked to do when he liked to do it. And a lot of times the stuff that he liked was horrible. So how was it that he could say that God's 
word was delightful, that knowing God was delightful. He seems to have tapped into a way of knowing God that is maybe different, that maybe could mentor us, that we might even find surprisingly delightful today. We're going to ask that question, how can we know God? And with David's help in Psalm 19, we're going to see we can know God because he has delightfully made himself known. So we're going to take a second and pray, and then we'll, we'll dive into this psalm together. Uh, Lord, I pray and just lift up the prayer of David today. Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray these things through Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in Psalm 19, the first thing that we need to remember is this is a song. Okay, so it says, what does it say there at the beginning of the psalm? To the choir master. This is for choir-led worship. A psalm of David. A psalm of David. So this was sung. Why does that matter? Because if you come with a sort of a skepticism, which many of us would, that we might delight in knowing God, or that it could be delightful to know the law of the Lord, to know God's word as a sinner, a person who likes things that the Bible says, aren't good for us. If we might uh, doubt the idea that knowing God could be good, this psalm was written for us, to mentor us, to help us, because it's not just telling us the answer, it's inviting us to sing the truth. Because God knows our frame. That's why he inspired psalms, guys. He didn't just inspire discourses. There are discourses in the scriptures. There's stories and narratives and history and genealogies, all that great stuff. But we need songs because we need the stuff we believe to actually make it from our heads to our hearts. And God knows that we need that. To not just say what's true, but to sing it. And so here's what David would have sung. How can we know God? First of all, we can know him in his world. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And you're going to note how David is, is speaking about the persistent self-revelation of God. God is revealing himself through the things he's made, and he's doing so persistently. You, you can see it when you read it in the original language, even better than the English, that he's using these present tense, ongoing verbs, participles, and, and, and ones that are called imperfect tense verbs. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The sky above is proclaiming his handiwork. Day to day is pouring out speech. Night to night, revealing knowledge. And all of this, obviously, there's no actual speech but it's by their very existence, by the glory of the things that the Lord has made themselves. They're proclaiming the reality that there is a God and he is glorious. There's a creator. And not only is this knowledge, is it persistently communicated everywhere you look, in everything you see, in the very fact of existence itself. Why is there something instead of nothing? It's not only persistently communicated. It's pervasive. So this, this knowledge is everywhere. Everywhere you go, this speech is heard. It's like the sun making its course through the day. And what does it say in verse 6? There is nothing hidden from its heat. Nothing can hide. If you were out in the desert in, in Israel, you would know this reality. If you've been out on, on a hike at the devil's backbone, you know this reality if you're there. 
after sunup. The sun's heat, it's real, it's inescapable, and it's all over the entire world so that we're without excuse. That's what Paul says in, in Romans 1, 18 through 20, talking about the persistent, pervasive self-revelation of God. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They want to hide from that reality that there's a God there. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they're without excuse. Paul is saying that there's no absence of evidence for God. Look around you. Just consider we're really good at this kind of skilled, selective blindness. And the thing is, I want to challenge us here, particularly those of us who are Christians, who it's our confession of faith, we follow Jesus, we say we're a part of a disciple-making family, we want to be more like Christ. One part of ourselves uh, that, that we shouldn't ignore is, is that we will ignore God speaking through some of the things he's made. I think of Greg for a moment. How do we account for Greg? Some of us are going to hide from that reality, as I mentioned earlier. But the the scriptures don't invite us to hide from it, but to celebrate that God would reveal himself even there. That's the story that Greg is a part of, after all, is a story where God, in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. Those heavens that are declaring the glory of God, God made those. And he called them good. And then what was the pinnacle of creation on the sixth day? So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He blesses them and sends them out, commissions them to spread his image throughout the world. If if the heavens are declaring the glory of God, how much more is the pinnacle of creation right in front of you, all around you, proclaiming the glory of God? Even In our fallenness, James, after the fall, the brother of Jesus writes in James 3.9, with our tongues we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So he's saying, be careful about your tongue. We're still regarded by God as image bearers, broken, but still glorious. This is what Edith Schaefer would refer to us as. We're... Uh, we're glorious ruins and we have leftover glory (laughs) that we can still see even after the fall. There's no speech nor are there words who's not heard. Greg can't help, even as an atheist, he doesn't believe there's a God, but his very existence, all of the goodness in him is proclaiming the character of the one who made him. He can't help it. Calvin writes about how we should respond to this. John Calvin, a helpful guy, uh, imperfect but helpful pastor in the 16th century. And he, he encourages pastorally uh, us as Christians to remember not to reflect on the wickedness of men, but look rather to the image of God in them, an image which, covering and obliterating their faults, should by its beauty and dignity allure us to love and embrace them. What he's saying is we should be glory hunters. Not everybody's as cool as Greg. There are a lot of stinkers, right? You know, you know, some people, you know, you use the phrase the worst. You know, they're the worst, 
right? But even that person is created in the image of the perfect and true and good creator. And there is a glory there. You may have to look, you may have to hunt. And it's worth looking for. Because in the same way God is making himself known, we can participate in making him known if we'll pay attention to that. I have a, uh, had a professor named Jerem. One of the delightful stories, he would tell all sorts of stories. But one of the amazing stories of his life and God's grace at work in his family was uh, his mother who uh, remarried in, in her age. Her first husband passed away. And soon after that, she met a man and married pretty quickly. But after that, the character of the man was exposed. And the man was emotionally abusive, mean-hearted, always the smartest person in every room, so putting people down as though he was the smartest one. And he completely dismissed Christianity, thought it was ridiculous. But she was a, a faithful, loving wife to him, to the best she could, and she prayed for him. And Jerem, he sought his best not to pray uh, only the imprecatory Psalms, like we talked about last week, uh, but actually to love the man. He felt called uh, to love him by his Savior, who said to love your enemies, and to pray for them, to bless those who revile you, and so forth. So he's trying to figure out how to do that. <laughs> and where he starts was looking for common ground. Where's common ground? Where's something that he and I both share and believe are good? It wasn't easy to find, but eventually he found that this man loved gardening. He lives in England where gardening's a big deal. They have garden competitions and things like this. This man would win his village's garden competition. And so Jerem started to connect with him over that. The once-a-year visits to England would... Um, involve him spending time in the garden. His letters, he would ask him about it. But he'd also sow some hints about that. You know, what a gift of God that we can enjoy the fragrance of flowers. What, what a goodness that we can participate in giving life. And then even prodding a little bit, pushing a little bit. You know, isn't it ironic how we can spoil such beautiful things? Isn't it ironic how we can be surrounded by such beauty and there can be such ugliness in here? And over time, sowing those kinds of seeds, even sowing the hope of Jesus and new creation life, all things being made new. In time, through prayer, the Lord answered those prayers and he became a Christian. He didn't have many years left to live, but he lived those years with hope and had a testimony to tell of God's grace in his life. And Jerem, to this day, praises the Lord for that grace and has hope for stinkers, encourages us all to have hope for those stinkers, the Lord can reach them. And one way that he might use us in that process is if we look for how the Lord is already at work, upholding goodness in their life, and connecting right there at that point, building a bridge right there to talk about the one who made them. They're communicating the glory of God even though they may not even believe it. So God has made himself known in his world but that's not entirely clear. The, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. You know, most every language and culture has a word for God, though they may not believe in the same God. This is the basic sort of word for God, Almighty as creator. But then, who is this God? David knew him as an Israelite, as his redeemer, as the Lord, Yahweh, who's revealed himself clearly, perfectly in his word. And so what the book of 
nature implies there's a God. Everything you see, it's implying there's a God. It's whispering ongoingly, pervasively. But the scriptures put front and center and absolutely clearly so you can't miss it. The Lord, he is God and there is no other. Remember, uh, it says in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God has made himself known in his word, in the law of the Lord. Remember, in your Bibles, when you see the capital L-O-R-D, right? That's Yahweh, the personal name of the Lord. Seven times that name's going to be repeated, a number representing completion. And the law of the Lord is perfect. One important sense of that word is that it's, it's complete, because in it we know this God. Now, many of us are off put by the idea of the law. We talked about this several weeks ago when we talked about Psalm 1. David has a different way of relating to the law of the Lord than we may. First of all, he's thinking of the Torah, which includes more than, not less than, what we think of as laws, rules for our life, statutes for individual community and national life. There's more, not less than that. The story of God's dealings with his people from creation to pursuing Abraham and raising up a people to redeeming them from slavery in Egypt to providing for their forgiveness and for their food in the wilderness to bringing them into a kingdom, sustaining them even when they turned away from him and giving them a king, David, to defend them and to extend the peace of God's kingdom in the world. In all of these things, the Lord was making himself known. And so David would say things like the law of the Lord is perfect, that it, that it revives the soul, that it's, that it's sure, it's a steady foundation. It's clean, it's upright. It's all these things that David knew he naturally was not. And he would even say things like this in verse 10. This is getting to the high point of the psalm in verse 11. More to be desired are they. That's all of these attributes of scripture and parts of scripture. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So, so he uses words like desirable. He would use words like delicious, tasty, sweet. The Puritan pastor Thomas Watson would say that the Lord is a delicious good. Do you talk like that? I think David's inviting us to recover a way of knowing God in this way. Sweet, like honey. Are there any chemists in the room? Any chemists, chemical engineers? Okay, there's, there's, there's one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we, we have some, some chemists in the room, so they could talk to us about honey. They could uh, describe its molecular structure. They could tell you about glucolic acid, which I looked up on Wikipedia and learned how to pronounce with the help of uh, a Google pronunciation thing, uh, which is one of the primary components of honey. They could talk about its properties. 
you know, and if you got an, an ENT or an oral surgeon, maybe a dentist, they could tell you about the taste receptors in your tongue and, and how they, they cause your brain to re release certain neurotransmitters when you taste it. That makes you happy when you have honey. But all the meanwhile, while these very intelligent people are talking, a child could just come in and take the jar of honey and scoop out and yum. Oh, it's so good. Honey all over their face, you know? And that's the thing. See, David, when he knew God, when he knew God in his word, he knew it with uh, the precision of a chemist. He knew the word well. He was well instructed. He was devoted to the word of the Lord. And yet he didn't know it just like, you know, your addition facts. He knew the Lord there. <laughs> he tasted. And he said, Yum. He didn't stop with just discoursing about God. He delighted in him. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we tap into that? First thing on one hand, which I'm not going to focus on because the psalm doesn't focus on Bible study methods. I do want to encourage you that if, if reading the Bible and finding it sweet to the taste sounds intimidating because you haven't started studying the Bible yet. That's just not been a part of your life yet. We want to come alongside you as a disciple-making family and help you in that. Uh, there are resources that have helped us. Um, Rick Warren's Bible study methods. The Navigators have great resources. We've used them in our men's Bible study. They're incredibly helpful, those resources. But where it really gets helpful is when you come into the community that comes around God's word and devours it and says, yum. And so we have Sunday school classes that you can connect with. We would love for you to connect with our Welcome Center and find out more about those. We have small groups where folks come together around God's word and we do life together. We pursue God's mission together, but we're seeking to delight in the word of the Lord together and learn. You can meet one-to-one -one for discipleship. That may sound strange as it sounded to me when someone came to me in college and he comes to my dorm so awkwardly and said, would you like to be my disciple? <laughs> it was the weirdest question I've ever heard. But I was starting to get to know more about Jesus at the time. And there was something I wanted. And he seemed to know more about it than me. So I just said, oh, okay. And, and we just learned to follow Jesus together, mostly while throwing a Frisbee back and forth and talking about the Bible. Discipleship begins there. But David is going to talk about sanctification. Um, not using the word sanctification, that's our theological word for uh, this process, the, the work of God's free grace where he renews us in the whole human nature after the image of God to be more and more like Christ. And he does so in a prayer because fundamentally that's what happens when we turn to God, when we start to delight in him. We live life saying, God, what do you have for me now? <laughs> Help me to be more like you. Help me to conform my life to you. And so that's where the psalm turns now. So uh, who can discern his errors, David says, starting in verse 12. Declare me innocent from hidden faults, he prays. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So we're, we're going to see in, in this process of sanctification that we learn as we go to God's word, as we're seeking to become disciples of Jesus, that the word, it, it convicts us, 
even as it convicted David, but then it comforts us and finally commissions us. It commissions us. Now, this is remarkable for David because remember, David, he knows the word, but he's also being known by the word. He's being searched out by it, convicted by it as he reads the word of God. What did, what did he say there? Who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults? That's a key word in this psalm. Just as nothing can hide from the reality of God in creation, in the heat of the sun, when we come to God's word, there's no part of us that can hide from God. It's all clear and available to him. He sees us as we are, and yet he loves us and speaks to us for our good. Hebrews 4 speaks of this, uh, this reality of God's word. It's like a double-edged sword that pierces to the core. And David would go and gladly receive that sword. Many of us, we, we, we like to skip this part, though, the conviction of God's word that tells us that part of us is wrong. <laughs> There's something wrong. that sees the hidden places of our soul. We like to hide from that. We're like Jill in, in uh, the silver chair in the Chronicles of Narnia. Jill meets Aslan. She's a little girl. Aslan's the great lion in the series. And when Jill comes to him for the first time, he's between her and a stream. She's dying of thirst at this point. She needs to drink, but she's terrified of the lion. And as she's approaching the lion, she says to him, will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? And Aslan, sort of in a low growl, says, I make no such promise. Because when we open up the Bible and when we allow God to speak to us, he doesn't leave us alone. He speaks to us even as he spoke to David. He speaks right to the hidden places that we don't want anyone to see. The mess we've created, we don't want anyone to speak into. He speaks right there. And he doesn't leave us alone. And in the middle of the conviction, what do we do? Where do we turn to relieve that sense of conviction, that discomfort? Many people would just leave the word behind. I mean, think about David for a moment. David was an adulterer. He takes a woman who is not his wife. He's an abuser of power. He's the king, and he used his kingship to have uh, th this woman's husband killed. And then he, he neglects his role as a dad, neglects his family duties, which not only endangers his family, but the whole nation. When Absalom revolts, he's a wreck. And yet... He goes back to the word again and again and finds comfort in being the servant of the Lord. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, he says in verse 13. Let them not have dominion over me. He knows where his autonomy has gotten him. We're wanting what he wants and getting what he wants. He's, he's seen where that goes. And he saw that the Lord's way is better it's a better foundation. It results in, in real love. But how could David feel that way when the Torah spoke so clearly against him? It's because he knew the one who was promised to bring comfort 
He knew the Redeemer. That's what we find. So God has made himself known in the world. He's made himself known in the, the word, but then he made himself known in the word who became flesh. David saw every year the hope of a Redeemer. Every year he would go to the Day of Atonement and he would offer a sacrifice, a picture of the forgiveness of his sins. We know that the blood of bulls and goats, they can never forgive sins, but the, those pictures were ultimately fulfilled in the image of God himself, Jesus Christ, who came to lay down his life in our place, to reconcile all things to God, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus has come. And this is what Hebrews 1 speaks about, as we read earlier, that he is the ultimate self-revelation of God. If you want to know God, look to him. Because long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you want to know God, well, he's come. The only begotten who's at the Father's side, he has made him known, John 1.18 says. And so David would turn to that comfort as the Lord was working out the sanctification process in him, convicting him, but then comforting him that he would be his redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, he would pray. He'd been a foundation to him, a better foundation than himself. He'd been a redeemer, one who had brought him out of his sin, one who redeemed him from the worst of his own choices, one who gave him hope and purpose enduringly. So how can we know God? We, we, we can see from the scriptures, if you want to know God, you can know him by paying attention to his glory and all the things he's made. You can know him through his word. Pick it up and read it. It's the best-selling book of all time. There's one year that the Bible was not the best-selling book. It was when Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows came out. Every other year in history, when people have kept track of this, the Bible has been the best-selling book, if only for that reason if not for the incredible influence it's had on all human civilization everywhere, we should look and consider what it contains. Because God is made known there. It's perfect. And ultimately, we can know God if we look to Jesus, the word who became flesh. But, but the question I want to close with today is I think about uh, Greg, my mentor. How on earth could he talk like David? How could he know God in this way and call it good that God is there? I wonder about this. I think about people in our culture. Uh, like last night, my brother and sister-in-law, uh, I won't embarrass them, but they're here right now. And they got us tickets to see Regina Spector in a concert last night. She is utterly brilliant. She's a concert pianist. Uh, who writes just really fun songs. Sometimes they're biting and satirical. Sometimes they're just goofy, nonsensical. They're all over the map. They can take you in. She can write wonderful love songs. But she's certainly not a Christian. There's one song she has called Baby Jesus, which is pretty sacrilegious. Um, if you have enough stomach for it, it's, it's still funny. Uh, but one of the, the, the things, sadly, that people were laughing at uh, along with her, as they sang it, was what they view as the way Christians 
view their neighbors. And so here's, here's the uh, lyric from that, that song, Baby Jesus. They said, this is Christians, they said all the non-believers, they get to eat dirt and the believers get to spit on their graves. They said all the non-believers, they get to eat dirt and the believers get to spit on their graves. And with Regina Spector's really cute, sweet voice and the way she plays piano, it comes out kind of funny and everyone laughs at the Christians who are so ridiculous. But this is the way Many of our neighbors in our culture view Christians. They don't anticipate something like love. They don't anticipate something sweet as honey being offered to them when they come to you. If you were to open up the Bible in front of them, they're not anticipating something that is more valuable than gold, even much fine gold. They're anticipating stones being thrown and people spitting at them and on their graves. That's the way many people expect Christians to be. And so how on earth could they Say something like, the law of the Lord is perfect. That's the question I'm asking with as we close together. I think of Greg's struggle with depression. He's walked through that. And Christians, sadly, at times have been some of the worst <laughs> in the way we handle and talk about depression. Just be happy. Rejoice in the Lord, brother. Why aren't you happy? You know? So Greg has not turned to the Bible for help with that. He's turned to helpful voices in the culture. And remember, remember, what did we say? God is revealing his glory even, even in folks who don't believe in him. All truth is God's truth. Uh, there's a, a psychologist named Andrew Solomon, not a believer, but he wrote a book called The Noonday Demon, an Atlas of Depression. And Greg turned here. He, he actually lent me the book as I was trying to process through questions about depression with my friends. Um, full of his, his notes in the margins. But here in, in the book, one of uh, the places where Solomon sort of concludes with an encouragement, an exhortation to folks struggling with depression, he writes this, listen to the people who love you. Believe that they are worth living for even when you don't believe it. Seek out the memories depression takes away and project them into the future. Be brave be strong, take your pills, exercise because it's good for you, even if every step weighs a thousand pounds. Eat when food itself disgusts you. Reason with yourself when you've lost your reason. Andrew Solomon writes, I wonder if some of you here today, I wonder if you've had a season where food has lost its taste, where where you've lost the ability to enjoy life. Maybe you've even been in a season of depression. You've been through COVID and you couldn't taste things for months. Age can do this to us. One of the horrible things uh, as, as age creeps onward and as death comes nearer is that we can lose our ability to taste and enjoy like we used to. Certainly depression and eating disorders, all of the sadness and brokenness of this world can take away our ability to delight. And when that moment happens, I wonder just even listening to the wisdom of this neighbor, Andrew Solomon, if you would reason with yourself, would you reason along with me? And, and I'd love to have a conversation with Greg or with any of you who are in a place like that, who couldn't imagine there being pleasure in God, to reason with you saying, you know what? Listen to someone who loves you. Listen to Jesus. Jesus who proved that he loves you by coming in flesh by suffering for you. 
He, went, he endured intense anxiety. He was sweating and looking to the cross that was ahead of him for you. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin for you and for me. He loves you. Would you listen to him and consider what he said? He's not speaking for your bad, but for your good. He knows it's hard. He knows that every step can feel like a thousand pounds. He walked every step to the cross for you and for me. And he would lift your step. He would help you. And he's even given you a people. And that's our calling, to help walk and take those heavy difficult steps, the small steps of grace, to take the food that we need that's good for us. It may not taste good at all, right? Sometimes medicine can be the worst, right? Chemotherapy, of all things, feels like it's killing us, and yet it's killing the cancer in us. Repentance can feel like chemotherapy. Sanctification can feel that difficult when we let go of things we think we need and we think that we love. And God is teaching us those things are killing us. And in his word, he would give us a new way. He's speaking clearly in every moment, every ray of sunshine. I'm here and I'm good. He's speaking. If you would open up his word, if you take that risk, he will speak to you and tell you he loves you and show you how he's loved you and show you a path forward, a path of wisdom that you can take in community in his grace. He transform your life. And, and when everything in your brain says that none of this is good and, and get rid of that Bible, it's just rules telling you what to do. Reason with yourself and consider maybe there's honey there. How could David have said this if it wasn't true? And wait until you taste it. How can we know God? We can know him because he's made himself known delightfully in his world, in his word, and in Jesus, the word who became flesh. I long to know him. I long for you all to know him. So let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would help us to taste and to see the goodness of Jesus. We pray for our neighbors who couldn't imagine Christianity being good, Jesus being good his word being good. We pray, Lord, that we could show them something different, that you would sanctify us so that we would be a picture of his love, that we could speak the word with credibility and with love and clarity, we, that we would live his word before them faithfully. Lord, I, I just pray that you'd be at work in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.